This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. This is the Paddock Pass podcast coming to you from David Emmett's German Barn. A decent 20 minutes from Saxon Ring and fresh after the latest red haze to have hit the sport for round seven of the series. Before we launch into our mini Panzerfaust of a busy, sunny and invigorating Licky Molly Motorrad Grand Prix Deutschland, this is a swift reminder to check out Renthor.com for any fitments or accessories you might need for your road bike. Thanks to our friends Jensen, you know that the Renthor are pretty much the key essential parts for upgrading your handling experience on the tarmac. Thanks guys. This is also our second show with the backing of Husqvarna Motorcycles. I know the people behind the brand uh, would much rather we talk about Ayumu Sasaki's fantastic speed in Moto3 rather than their bitter misfortune in Moto2, where Darren Binder was punted out of the running on his Licky Molly Intact GP machine once again on the first corner. Uh, we know Sam Lowe's was not too happy about the dwindling track time for Moto2 this year, but the South African must have a total race time of less than 20 seconds in two weekends through no fault of his own. Jeremy Alcoba, hang your head in shame. Speaking of Yuma Sasaki, lovely guy. We spoke with him exclusively on this show, and that interview is coming up a bit later. As for Husqvarna, Svartpilen and Vitpilen models, uh, pronunciation any good, Dave? Svartpilen and Vitpilen. Thank you for the correction. Uh, three different. I mean, like, I don't even know. That's, that's just what I think Swedish should sound like. It sounds impressive, anyway. Um, three different cylinder sizes are impossible to miss or ignore. I've ridden the Svartpilen 125 and attempted some dirt tracking on the 401. Excellent bikes. I'm Adam Whedon. I've talked enough, so I'm pleased to be joined by... David Emmett. And... Neil Morrison. Isn't that baritone so comforting? Uh, so, lads, very quickly, 1 to 10, how would you grade the German GP and why? Uh, I would give the uh, sprint race 5 out of 10 because it was a bit boring. Uh, main race 8 out of 10, which was a, it, it was a really, really good race. Not a all-time classic, but it very, very um, uh, thrilling and entertaining. Neil, David told us that we're just going to have a number and not explain anything, and then he <laughs> explained it. So I just can't help myself. Yeah, I'll give it a 9. Um, decent weather on race day. Uh, good crowds, good company. And uh, a main race that actually surprised us. I was expecting a bit of a bore because the sprint race was a bit of a bore. Um, and it looked as though no one would be able to match Jorge Martin over the race. But uh, we actually had a bit of a thriller that went the right the way down to the uh, to the wire. So, yeah, I would give it a nine. That was an even longer explanation. I'll say an eight out of ten. Uh, weather, people, uh, action, it was pretty good. The only thing missing was like Mugello pizza. But we did pretty well with Vietnamese, Indian and... We stayed away from the media centre, Frankfurt. If anybody listening to this is ever fortunate enough to get a media pass for the Saxon Ring German Grand Prix, stay away from the media centre at Bratwurst and Frankfurt. Even the vegetables had meat in them. <laughs> there um, was potato soup which had meat in, and there was uh, potato salad which had meat in, and I think there was another soup which also had meat in. Dave, other than riding your motorcycle to this Grand Prix, what was your moment of the weekend? Uh, my moment of the weekend was riding my motorcycle from here into the race, uh, into the circuit in the morning. It, I mean, apart from the fact that it's always just a lovely ride. It's also, it was really heartening to see full crowds and a very mixed crowd, a, very a lot of young people, uh, a lot of you know women, girls, um, men, boys, everything it was really mixed uh it's really important for the future of the sport that we see young people 
going to races. This is the heart of motorcycle racing in this region in Germany. They love racing here. So, yeah, this was, it really was the, uh, it was really heartening to see. No? Uh, well, I mean, two moments, if you'll allow me to have two. Uh, first was probably going out during morning warm-up. Um, you can go just outside the paddock and stand between the entrance to turn one and the, uh, the outside of turn 11. Um, so you're so, so close to the guys entering turn one. You can see them basically putting everything on the front tire, back wheel coming up in the air, and they just come straight past you. If you put your arm out, they would, you would be able to touch them. And then you basically have to turn around, take two steps, and you're looking across at the guys descending the Ralph Waldman curve, which was uh, pretty cool. And with regards to racing, I would have to say Johan Zarco's uh, full-blooded move on Brad Binder at the end of the sprint, the last lap. I mean, it was pretty uh, on the line. It was um, just a boy, I guess, within the limits of uh, racing. It was a last lap overtake. Really, really impressive stuff from Zarco. A little bit naughty. Um, and yeah, thankfully... But, but naughty but nice, right? Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, though, um, you know, Brad managed to, to get through it. And Zarco loves that place. I think he put one of his best passes ever on Alessio Spargo there last year. And he passed Marini there, I think, in the, the main race on Sunday. So, yeah, Zarco was absolutely uh, box office through... Uh, the waterfall there was a bit of retribution about that wasn't there after the first lap contact in the sprint i think between binder and zarko at the time right we, like you say it was a bit naughty we thought it was hazardous right dave i mean we watched it yeah, together yeah, yeah, in the yeah. media center yeah. and and then your I, initial I, reaction was like you can't do that that's the most dangerous place on the track and then you sort of like you go back and you watch it and say, oh, wow i mean it's absolutely right on the limit and it is the last lap and you have to allow people to try to pass and brad did make a bit of a mistake in the previous turn because he was trying to line up Luca Marini and altered his line and slowed himself down in the end. So, um, yeah, yeah the, the opportunity was there. But he said also when Zaga came through, if he didn't anticipate and pick up, then he said he wouldn't be here anymore, which I thought was quite a poetic way of saying he would have been in big trouble. But I, mean, I asked Zarko about it in the debrief on Saturday and, um, you know, he had crashed there earlier on in the day. So it was quite feasible. He could have, you know, taken himself and been the both to the moon. Um, but then he went into great detail describing the crash and how it was um, quite unexpected. And yeah, that move was uh, all just part of his arsenal. Um, for me, my moment was um, same similar place down the exit of turn one. Jorge Martin, I think, is past the past two riders in the sprint and pretty much set the tone for his weekend and his capabilities on this particular racetrack. Turn um, 12. Inst yeah, coming down turn 11 into turn 12. Thank you, Neil. Let's not get too pedantic, shall we? <laughs> um, in the press conference, you know, Martin said that he found podium confidence recently after Michelle Dave, and now he has uh, winning confidence. So it seems that um, all is in bloom with, um, you know, the rider who took his second MotoGP career victory. <laughs> Let's talk about him for a moment. Uh, my, you know, one of my sort of, big discussion point so is martin a championship contender can we look at him and think you know he's on a similar bike to the world champion at the moment um neil alesha spargaro had quite an interesting comment in his debrief earlier in the weekend didn't he he did yeah um i mean to answer your question first of all on recent evidence you would have to say he is a title contender um for the second weekend in succession we saw ducati have a ridiculous advantage over the the rest of the field KTM, the only other manufacturer that were in some way able to mount any kind of defense. Um, but eight bikes in the top nine get, tell you all you need to know about um, where Ducati are at the moment around the track that used to be horrible for them. This used to be their worst track in the calendar and now they're 
putting eight bikes in the top nine is quite remarkable. 2008 was the last win. So they don't okay. have any kind of previous record there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, Martin is, okay, he's not in the factory team, but he's on the latest GP23. Um, and he has managed to, there was a few things that you would, at the start of the year, you would say were definitely weaknesses in his armory. Um, one of them was consistency. Another one was aggression. Didn't necessarily show the requisite aggression. And we had seen him come under serious pressure and perform in Moto3 when he was fighting for the championship in 2018, but we hadn't seen him put under serious pressure in MotoGP before. Okay, his debut win at uh, the Red Bull ring back in 21. Tranmere was there or thereabouts, but Martin was on the superior bike. And it was quite different, I think, on Sunday when it was Pekka Bagnaia, the world champion, chasing him down and trying to pass him out with him. And that was a whole different type of pressure. So I think he excelled in all three of those aspects. You know, his aggression from sixth on the grid, coming through to first within, well, one lap or two laps. Um, and then, uh, yeah, holding his nerve towards the end. And this is his sixth podium, if you count the sprints in a row. You know, he has managed to get that consistency together. Um, yes, he's on the best bike in the grid, but he's managing to make it work. And he's, what, uh, 14 points off by now, now? Um, it's it's quite 16, interesting. Sixteen, I think. Sixteen, probably. Sorry, Dave. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, it's uh, it's interesting, and it, it it's good because I think we all feared that Pecco was perhaps going to piss off into the distance. But um, you know, Martin does look as though he might actually have something to offer. It's great that somebody, like you say, is keeping Bagnaia in check. Um, you know, and like Aspargaro said, that he believed that Bagnaia is the the complete package, whereas Martin is more as the rider in form, maybe has more outright raw talent for the for the quick lap. Yeah, and he said without question, he thinks Martin is the more talented rider than uh, Peko. He said Peko, yeah, as you said, I'd um, more complete. He's got the number one in his bike that shows that he's the better rider if you analyze all the skill sets. But he said in terms of explosivity. And um, yeah, just raw talent. Then he thinks that Martin is definitely a superior rider, which is which is interesting. But are we getting ahead of ourselves, Dave? I mean, it's if we took the Grand Prix races, then it's three podiums in a row, one of them victories. It's it's not like um, you know Martin has gone one 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 in the last three Grand Prix. Maybe by Assen and going into the summer break, if he's again in the top three or again victorious, then we have to say, okay, you know, now we have to look at Martin as a you know, uh, arguably more than Bezeki is the, the most viable championship threat to Bagnai. But then also, guys, we know that Martin doesn't bounce very well. So we haven't really seen him down the road yet. Can I uh, pour cold water on any championship talk by pointing out that there are 481 points still left in the championship, which is three times as many as the championship leader, um, uh, Pekka Bagnaia. So there is just an insane amount of points still left in the championship. It is way too early. I think what you can say is that uh, Banyaya is looking, again, like the complete package. He's looking very controlled, uh, even though he finished second year, uh, today. You know, they, 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 they found something. They made an improvement from yesterday um, and just managed to... This was something that Jorge Martin said as well. You know, when, you're, when you and your team can make that kind of step forward from Saturday to Sunday, it means that you're uh, very good. Yeah, and he was saying in warm-up, he was looking at Peko's data after the warm-up session. He was like, is this the same guy as yesterday? Because Banyai had made such an enormous step, I think, in the... The long series of left corners, sector two, which is where he was losing a lot of time on the brakes. He was great in the sprint, but sector two, losing a lot of time in the sprint. But then, uh, like we've seen so often with Peko, come Sunday, he's 
that's when he's most formidable. Yeah, and he's very calm, very patient, hasn't panicked. Um, we've seen a couple of mistakes this year, uh, but again, he just seems to be able to click, you know, get it to click and make it work. Uh, can Martin challenge for the championship? 100%. You know, he has the talent, he has the speed. Um, the real test will be when we get further down uh, the season, closer to the end, um, if he's still in contention, what happens when he starts getting real pressure right now i mean as i said there's so many points still left you could afford to make a mistake i mean ktm currently have a problem you know trying to fit pedro acosta into their motor gp lineup and we'll get onto that later and jorge martin has actually been referenced by some ktm management as a rider who didn't have the patience or he didn't want to hang around for another year saying moto 2 in order to be able to squeeze into ktm's motor gp plans you know, Martin obviously, you know, is one of the star riders in MotoGP. I wonder how much this year as well, Dave O'Neill, he's riding like a man scorned because he was passed over for the NAA Bastianini saddle. And we're doing a disservice to NAA because he's been injured. We haven't seen anything like his proper potential on the factory bike. And whether it's higher than what he achieved last year on a, a, an older machine. But um, I think Martin is, is probably ma- maximizing everything he has. He's doing the opposite of Maverick and maximizing his potential and taking everything out. Exactly. And not just that. Um, there's a reason for it as well. He was, uh, he did feel really scorned by the fact that he didn't get a, a, a factory rad. However, in his contract, um, he has a one. Uh, he has a two-year contract. Um, but he also has in his contract that if he's offered a, a factory ride somewhere else, um, uh, Ducati can uh, do offer him make a counter offer to put him in the factory team. So um, you know his dream of ending up in the factory Ducati team is not yet dead. I mean he is. I mean Bastianini has been injured. We have really have to wait for the second half of the season to see what Bastianini can do. Um, but you know right now. Right now, it is Martin who is really performing. But Bastini is not on a one-year deal, deal work. And, and Ducati are not going to cast him aside that quickly, would they? To say, well, they right. wouldn't cast him aside. They'd just put him in the Pramac team. I mean, all, that's all it would do. It would just be like, it would be a, it'd be a game of swapsies. It seems um, a little unrealistic. I mean, if Martin, we were linking him to the factory Yamaha team. And, you know, we were kind of asking riders at the end of the day, on Sunday day, would you accept a contract to be a factory... Uh, rider for a Japanese manufacturer at this point, considering there are eight Ducatis in the top 10 plus a KTM. And they were all really nervous about answering that question. Yeah, yeah, and there were a couple of knowing... I mean, Luca Marini had a big smile on his face. I still think Marini's a good shoe-in, you know, for, for the ride next to Fabio Quattararo if Franco Morbidelli moves out. And you'd, you'd Morbidelli, Neil, in his debriefs, was saying he wants to continue with Yamaha, despite the comments after Mugello, where it was a case of like, well, that's clearly a division and a split there. There was lots of, um, you know, tones or gestures towards his current team saying he wants to continue. Uh, Again, you and I were discussing in the car when we were driving here to record the podcast, you know, what is the difference between a satellite contract and a factory contract? You know, there's obviously going to be, you know, a monetary difference, but then also in terms of the resources at your disposal. You know, um, and I, Bagnaya brought up the subject in Le Mans quite infamously. You know, the differences now between factory riders and satellite riders is, perhaps minuscule. I mean, Jorge Martin could win the World Championship this year. He could. At the moment, it's still very much theoretical. You have to wait until we get to uh, a situation where it's a realistic possibility um, to see whether, you know, Ducati would want a 
their factory rider to win rather than a, a satellite rider. I mean, this was also. I mean, if Jorge Martin did win the um, uh, with the world championship, they would have a very very simple solution, which would be to put him in the factory team the next year, so he's still got the number one plate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, like I say, at the moment it, it's a bit theoretical. The, the differences are absolutely minimal between uh, between the bikes, especially between. Pramac and the factory uh, and the factory team, but the factory team just have more resources. They just just by sheer weight of you know data engineers and 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 uh, various other engineers wandering about, they can make the difference. Well, we've completed the sprint element of the podcast. We're just going to head into a quick break, and then we'll be back for the main thing, where we're going to tackle the big talking point, I guess, from the Grand Prix aside from results, and that's Mark Marquez. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Before we continue, just to show how um, insightful and expertful we are on the Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to play you a little bit of an excerpt from last week's show. Quite importantly, Mark's level of competitiveness this weekend will say a lot for Honda's current state. Mark owns the Saxon ring. It's as simple as that. You know, he doesn't. He just doesn't get beaten there because it is all uh, lots and lots of long left corners, which is his speciality. I have already put Mark Marquez in my fantasy team. It's hard to see anyone beating him. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, also, I was expecting Mark to go in two-footed on Honda after the race in uh, in Mugello. From that, I was I was taking that Mark was was thinking. You know what? Actually, good tracks coming up for us now. David and Neil, you stand accused of. Uh... <laughs> Being absolute idiots. Of being slightly uh, off with your miscalculation. How do you plead? Guilty, Your Honour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are absolutely banged to rights. Put the Um, handcuffs on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, In my defence, Your Honour, I would say that it wasn't Mark Marquez who failed here. It was Honda. Because Honda had a horrible weekend. Absolutely horrendous weekend. Uh, Takanakagami had a massive crash. Uh, Mark Marquez had five crashes, um, I think three on Saturday, uh, three, or was it three in the space of 38 minutes? Or 30, 30 minutes, yeah, 28 minutes, yeah. Uh, it's, um, and Joanne Mears Honda was being pilfered for parts at yeah, one point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Joanne Mears is already out, Alex Rins is already out. Uh, the bike is, right now, the bike is just an absolute liability. It's um, Can't be trusted. Yeah, well, it's worse than the worst uh, time of the 500, uh, uh, 500 era almost. You know, it just, because Mark's massive high side in warm-up on Saturday mo- or Sunday morning, um, Takanakagami was following and he was explaining, it's like, he wasn't on the limit, he wasn't pushing, he wasn't really doing anything wrong. The bike just suddenly just let go. And that's the problem with this bike. It's the, the operating window is so incredibly narrow. As I said on the, uh, on the note show last night, the, the, the operating window, it remi- reminds me a lot of the 2009-2010 uh, Ducati 2011 as well, where the operating window of, of the bike is so narrow. It will work if you get everything exactly right. If you then throw in the uh, Michelin tyres, which have a, a relatively narrow 
temperature operating window where they're really good. It makes it really difficult to get everything exactly right, getting exactly the right setup for exactly the right temperature uh, for exactly the right tires. And if you don't do that, then the rear will let go. Uh, the the front will let go. You're going to end up in the gravel. You're going to uh, end up getting hurt. And that's exactly what happened to Mark. Yeah, I mean, uh, Taka was pretty interesting to speak to over the weekend. He was he was he was more honest, brutally honest than I think I've heard him in yeah, a ever. long time. Yeah, possibly ever. Um, yeah, and I guess he, he had to be. Um, and you get the impression that uh, people in the race teams are are. are, are Having to be a bit open and a bit uh, a bit tough to get the message through to Japan that this is a, a dire situation. This is a, a kind of an emergency. Um, you know, Taka was saying that four or five times a lap during the sprint, his front tire was closing or his front was closing. He was saying there was no grip at all. Rear was coming around. Corner exit so aggressive. And I mean, those are the probably the two most fundamental parts of of kind of bike yes. feeling that. But then the defense states that there have been seven Grand Prix this year. Six have been won by Ducati and the only other brand to have won another one is Honda. So the bike can win. Like you say, Dave, maybe Alex Rins was operating on another level that day in Austin. But then also, uh, you know, he, like you said, the Honda was in a sweet spot. Yeah, but what good is having a bike that can win at one track in an entire calendar year? With, and a, then with, the, a, with a rider who is especially good and particularly good at that particular track. Yeah, and then, you know, injures three of its men quite seriously, um, you know, at other tracks. Um, I mean, Yeah, but Neil, Cal Crutchlow hobbles around and he was the only other individual that could push the bike in the last six, seven years to victory. But yeah, we know but, Mark Marquez has made the difference for Honda for the past decade yeah but the difference now is that honda uh that bike was very difficult to ride um and if you pushed over the limit it would crash but generally you know the front would go so you'd end up in the gravel riders are will accept the front going because the 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 crash is generally less violent the 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 danger is is what we see for example at turn at, at turn 11 here where, uh, you know, it's a fast crash, you come off, you hit the gravel, and then you start tumbling. Um, but most front low sides, are you, ju- you know, you slide, you, you hit the gravel, it's painful, you get end up with burns, but you don't break anything. It's the high sides which are really, really dangerous. That's the difference between now and uh, three or four years ago. The, the people are getting thrown into the sky and they're picking up properly serious injuries. Yeah, and um, you know we're in 2023. We're not in 1991 racing 500s. What other MotoGP machine on the grid has consistent high sides? I mean, there's no other bike. No, I can't, that... I, I can't think of another bike which, which will spit you off like that. Exactly, yeah. And we're not just talking about this year. We're talking about... Think back to Paul Spargro's time. Think back to Jorge Lorenzo's time. I mean, huge crashes that have caused all of those guys to miss races. Um, and, you know, one of the most damning statistics was uh, that was the second time this year in seven races that neither Repsol Honda has been on the grid. 75% of the rider lineup was missing yesterday on Sunday's grid. I mean, this is, yeah. this is pretty damning. This is not something that can be rectified. Um, you know, they're so far off now. You know, 2017 or 2016... Um, years when the bike was difficult to ride in the past and the riders were crashing a lot they were a little bit behind Ducati perhaps you could say a little bit but now it's we're talking about 20 seconds over a race it's uh, it's a massive massive difference and I mean it's uh, 
it's it's not just it's not just the bike it's the it's the the kind of the the way of working the, the attitude the attitude the philosophy the reaction times at honda which is causing problems it does sound as though people within the repsol and lcr teams are becoming increasingly frustrated and fed up with the lack of urgency with which this problem is being dealt with um and and, and you just have to say like this is an urgent situation they don't have time to to deal with this and everything is taking way too much time yeah the 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 honda way the japanese factory way is to test everything to destruction uh, before actually putting it on the bike they don't want things to break down so they test and they test and they test they want to make sure it works they want to make sure it's better um, and they they wait for a long time ducati and ktm have shown that that is not the way to make progress in MotoGP now. What you do is you put bikes, you put things, you know, on the bike as soon as, po- as possible if you think they might be an improvement. If you don't, you take them off. It, to make progress, you have to work. I mean, there's a certain amount of sympathy for logistics, uh, you know, especially post-pandemic, maybe for Japanese factories just to put the same kind of speed and resources into their racing projects might be more difficult now. But, I mean, just to speculate further, Dave, putting you on the spot you know if we have to identify a flaw in honda's concept which was only new two years ago they redesigned the rcv i mean would we say electronics i mean well, they changed their electronics engineer for this season um maybe that would explain the high sides i don't know i mean they've always had a problem with uh with electronics the 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 electronics of the honda has always been bad um since 2016 since yeah, basically since since 2016, since they could no you no longer write their own software, since they had to start using the Magneti Morelli software, what they really need is an external person to come in and sort their uh, uh, electronics out. But it has also got just got worse and worse and worse and worse over the years. Um, uh, also, the way that they changed the bike, what they did with this new concept bike was because the, the old bike had no rear grip and was all front end, they wanted to, what they really ideally wanted was to create more rear grip uh, while retaining the same front end uh, feel. What they ended up doing was sacrificing front end feel and still not producing any uh, 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 any rear grip. Um, they are They're going to have to go away and build a completely new bike again uh and that's it's a lengthy process you know that's it it's at least a year yeah and what are the chances of them getting it right i mean the last time they did it they failed miserably um do they have the expertise at their disposal in this new era of MotoGP when such an emphasis is placed on aerodynamics such an emphasis is placed on ride height devices i was told quite an interesting story Yesterday, that involved one of Honda's ex-riders that had come from a rival manufacturer, um, ex-rider. Um, they came with one or two little tidbits of little secrets from the previous factory where they were saying, look, previous bike does this at the start. You know, the launch control does this and the bike does this. It's an improvement. And they were told in no unspecific terms that um, by the time that got the okay from Japan to go through all the testing and whether it's the right way forward, it would take the best part of a year, a yeah. full season to implement that on the Honda. So yeah. that's that's what they're up against. I was also told a story that, um, you know, the Repsol Honda team, of course, mostly European, uh, well, a large percentage of it. You know, they have their own uh, sense of urgency, of course, because they're the ones rebuilding the bloody thing every session. There was, um, you know, a, a 
an attempt to get external engineers from another manufacturer into the team, and um, this apparently was blocked by HRC, which you know, I guess is their right if they have their own you know engineering team inside Japan. Why would you also feel the need to? Well, we've explained why you know you need that external input, but then you know also look what KTM have done. Yes, exactly. There's the the proof in the pudding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's Ducati steel engineers, KTM steel engineers, Aprilia steel engineers. That's the way you make progress. But this is why I find it so difficult to understand, because back in the day, Honda used to steel engineers. You yeah. think back to whenever they signed Casey Stoner in 2011, they went and poached Stoner, they poached uh, Christian Gabarini, his uh, his crew chief, um, they went to Yamaha at some point around that time. They to went to Yamaha and they got two, two electronic uh, engineers, including Andrea Zunio. You know, you know, those two guys made a huge difference. And they, 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 and they really, won a world championship. Yeah, exactly. They need to go back to that uh, uh, to that sense of well, urgency. And you wonder, you wonder that was when Nakamoto was uh, kind of the, the main man within yep. Honda's MotoGP operation. And you just wonder whether his capacity, his ability, his authority maybe yeah. had a bit more sway with I, the factory in Japan. I think it is really the, the amount of political, uh, the personality of the Japanese uh, of vice president, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the vice president of HRC, who effectively runs uh, uh, Honda's MotoGP project, that is the person who, ha who matters most because that is the person who can make the decisions. That's the, that, his personality, his political sway within HRC, his ability to make decisions, um, uh, basically decides what happens to, uh, to, to Honda. I also heard there was an approval process of at least half a year to get a Calyx piece of equipment on the RCV. Like you said, Dave, you just have to move faster than that. Yeah, Otherwise, exactly. you, you know, yeah. you'd be left behind. They flew the Calyx chassis to Japan. They put it on their um, uh, on their chassis dyno. Uh, you know, they uh, twisted, bended, uh, tested it, uh, shook it up and down, uh, make sure it worked. You know, stuck it in the fridge for six weeks to see if it would come out in one piece. All that sort of uh, uh, all that sort of stuff, just to see how the thing reacted, to see if it was uh, if it was up to spec. Um, uh, I mean, yes, that is useful. That is extremely useful. But you could also just be doing that in parallel. With the uh, with the bike, with the riding, and, and you know this leaves us with the question: Where does Mark Marquez go from here? Because you had the impression the way he was riding was as if he was trying to show that he could still do it; he could still win a race. I think it's his longest margin in the Premier Class without a win, going all the way back to when Mizano twenty twenty one at the end of that year. Six hundred and two days it would have been. Yeah, exactly. So it's now six hundred and three days well, since his last win. That's also partly down to his contribution and, you know, the the state of his arm. Um, you know, he was made decisions on on the surgery there. But we'll get on to Mark in a moment now because going back to the HRC, Dave, I mean I can remember Nakamoto coming to MXGP and um brazenly saying the Honda wanted the full set. You know, Dakar was the only thing they had to left to win. Tim Geiger won the world championship for them in the premier class in 2016. I think it was the first time, goodness, in a long, long time. I can't remember the the, name, the number off the top of my head. And Honda had that kind of, I don't want to say arrogance because that's the wrong word, but sense of superiority at the time because Mark Marcos was winning everything. They were obviously the motorcycle in Moto2. You know, the, the Honda was the bike to have, you know, it seemed at most levels. But they are the biggest motorcycle manufacturer in the world. Um, they sell the most uh, manufacturer in the world. They're the leading Japanese manufacturer at the end of every uh, summer during graduation when all the leading uh, Japanese engineering students graduate. 
uh, Honda get first pick, basically. Uh, so they, they, they get the cream of the crop. And Yeah, and don't forget also, they were the pioneers of the four-stroke MotoGP era. I mean, Valentino Rossi just used to clear off. I mean, if you needed 10 extra seconds of Phillip Island, then, you know, no problem, I'll it. deliver. And I think it's hard for, if you talk about cultural differences in factories, to suddenly think, well, MotoGP, we're, we're uncompetitive now for two years. Let's quickly turn it around. I just don't think there's the possibility within big corporations like that to be able to, you know, um, it's, it's like a tanker, you know, put it put it in reverse. How long is it going to take to actually turn? Yeah, but again, it comes down to uh, it comes down to the political, to the uh, personality and the political power of the person in charge. And I'm not sure. I Kuwata San who's vice president of HRC, uh, seems like seems extremely competent, um, but I'm not sure that he has the power to radically transform that engineering department in the way that Gigi Delinia radically transformed the engineering department in um, uh, in, in Ducati. Not even by far, because he didn't sack anyone. He just started rotating in engineers in and out of the test team, the race team, so that everyone understood what everyone else's problem was. Yeah, that's a great point, Dave. Um, but I mean, going back to what you said now, now about Mark, and we had observations in our show last week coming to Saxon Ring, and not even Mark. I mean, who would now would want to ride a Honda? I mean, Joanne Mir must have been watching the exploits of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from his sofa yesterday, thinking, Christ, I've got to go to Assen next week and get on that thing. Uh, I just don't think it's appealing anymore, is it? It's, it, it can't. Of course, there is all the external stuff of being a factory rider for HRC. It's still still a big deal. Curry's prestige, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, if you're Pedro Acosta, what would you rather do? Take a satellite Ducati and get paid 100 grand? Or, you know, take a million and be on a Honda? You would take a satellite Ducati and you would pay to ride that satellite Ducati (laughs) over riding the Honda currently. I mean, you would. It's a career ender as it stands. I mean, yeah, where does Joanne Mir's career go from this? It's, uh, you know, he was one of the most hot, he was one of the hottest prospects in the Grand Prix paddock a couple of years ago. And now he is in risk of being the forgotten man. Um, yet you would, you would pay all of the money in your bank account to ride a satellite Ducati right now over a Honda. I think we need to not underestimate the hubris of the motorcycle racer because they truly believe that they are better than everyone else. They truly believe that they can make the difference. They truly believe, or at least they're they're truly capable of kidding themselves, that it will be different this time. Um, they reach a point where they look at their scars though right and it hurts uh, to yeah, get out of bed yeah but that's usually you know like uh, about halfway through the second year of the contract uh, and that that's not there I think there are still a lot of riders who say no no you would take a character you would take a factory contract I think I can't remember who it was because we are so many riders about uh, you know like signing for Yamaha or signing for Honda and they all said no you take a factory contract you know for a start of the money secondly just the fact that you get a direct influence on the bike you can actually influence the bike that and that i think is the where they're going wrong because it is absolutely patently obvious that you're not getting any influence on the bike because the engineers aren't listening yeah exactly i was just about to say ask paul espargaro about how much influence he had on the the honda in his two years there yeah um ask any test rider you know like what they what the japanese factories do with their um uh, with their feedback, and they will tell you, you know, they write it down, they say it's very interesting, and then they go away and sort of, you know, ignore it. I wonder if Stefan Bradl's having some chicken that's uh, gone by its sell-by date. Or yeah, maybe that's right, yeah, that's right. He's, he's going through he's going through the, uh, the, the, the seafood section looking for the oldest box of prawns in there. Yeah, and he hasn't washed his hands in days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, what's, um, what was your take on Mark this weekend? Because 
for me, it was one of those a full sympathy to him and what he's going through, but it was one of those uh, sporting um, scaffolds, you know, to take a Shakespearean term, where we arrive at a circuit where he's won 11 times. You know, you guys were on the money by saying we cannot rule Mark Marquez out. I even put him in my fantasy team. So did I. I almost boosted him yeah. as well. Uh, and, you know, we expected a result from him against the odds like he's done so many times. And to win that many races, the Honda wasn't the best bike, as we said, that many years. But this this was a case of like, on, on Mark Marquez's stage, it all went horribly wrong. I mean, he fell through it with a, with a <clears> massive <throat> smash. And it all started really from, you know, the sense of desperation just went up from the moment he started hitting Marco Bezzecchi, um, you know, in, in the wet P2, I want to say, on Friday. No, that was Saturday morning. Saturday morning, okay. Well, from the crash, I mean, have a five crashes in total. Um, things like running across the track after being assisted up, you know, um, the, to the vicious high side, basically in warm up, a ten minute session on Sunday morning. I mean, even led Jack Miller to sort of give give quite an emotional reaction in his debrief yesterday. It was um, just a catalogue of utter despair for Mark, and uh, he must be really sore. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was hideous. Like uh, it was sort of like Indonesia last year. Um, when he just sort of threw caution to the wind and, okay, he throttled off in the, the sprint race, but um, was clearly trying to, to give it some. He did say after qualifying and those three crashes, he crashed three times, put everything into it, and he still only qualified seventh um, at the Saxon ring. You know, So that was, I think, what influenced him to... to um, to roll off a little bit in the sprint race and um, you know just accept uh, an eleventh place, um, but yeah, it's terrible. Um, I'm, I'm, what does he? What does he do? He's got a year and a half left on his contract. You can see that, as you mentioned, this sort of tanker is it's going to take a long time to turn around. Um, but what are the options available to him? That's the that's the kind of difficult thing. You know, obviously, if there was a seat open to him next year you'd think he would jump at it but I just don't see what seats there are yeah I don't think there are any we don't know the monetary factor aside and you'd assume that Mark really never needs to worry about money again in his career uh, we don't know how he can get out of his contract if he can get out of his contract um, we were, we're unlikely to know until you'll see a headline somewhere but Dave what do we think about kind of the, the general public's reaction to what Marcos is doing it seems to fall very much into the into the case of people damning his actions, his, his um, you know, his ludicrousy, and then also other people just admiring the, you know, the ability to keep picking himself up and keep having a go. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, people either admire his uh, mental strength or uh, they uh, think he's, you know, just insane. A hazard in a hazard in wheels. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there is a lot of that sort of, you know, he's a danger to people, but you know, the, the person he's a, da- a danger to is himself. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of people were slagging off Mark Marquez. Like, all you need to do is is look to see how many Hondas there were on the grid uh, at the, you know even in the sprint race. The fact that there are there's a one Honda rider sitting at home with a broken leg. There's another a rider sitting at home with an injured hand. Uh, now you know Mark missed the race with you know a, a broken thumb and, and various other injuries. Yeah. Nakagami uh, went for a, a good old tumble through turn eleven and was pretty pretty sore and battered and bruised. The, 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 I mean, 
you you have to leave Marquez aside at the moment. This has got absolutely nothing to do with Mar- Marquez. The bike is a liability. Uh, if Marquez has a weakness, it's that he is trying to overcome this and losing the battle every single time. That's why because, he deserves credit, perhaps. Yeah, that, that's why, yeah that, exactly. That's why he deserves credit. Uh, uh, I mean, like he used to be able to do this. He used to be able to overcome the shortcomings of the bike. But the, the, right now, the bike is winning, and that is, uh, and I don't mean that in the in the good sense, you know. The, 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 the bike is beating Mark Marquez, and that is, um, that, that just illustrates the dangerous situation that HRC is in. Is it true? Also, that Honda asked him not to ride. It wasn't his call on Sunday morning. That was that's the, what that's, that's well. There's a mixed bag. Um, apparently, well, I heard that he initially he was up for riding, but then I was told as the morning progressed and the pain, the pain kicked in, um, he was more willing to accept the idea of not riding. Yeah, but it was you know it was it was Honda who were um, I think they Honda were more keen about on him not riding. You know, they wanted him not to ride. Uh, uh, Mark was sort of like thinking, well, no, let's give it a go. But um, It's not a good look, is it? I mean, this is this is like Yamaha Red Bull Ring. We apologise to our riders because our engines and motorcycles are not good enough at yeah. the moment. Yeah, but I mean... Yeah, but I even mean, then, like, it, it, Yamaha's riders weren't getting spat off and injured. You know, yeah. they were just uncompetitive. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Here. But also, like, it was getting to the point where Mark was just not fit enough as... It, there, I mean, the fact that he wore um, sunglasses, sunglasses uh, in his in his Dawner interview immediately sort of has, has kicked off speculation about uh, whether the diplopia. Dip, dip, I hate that. I really hate. It. I mean, his like vision, a, his vision. Yeah, whether he's got double vision again. Um, that it, it's just sheer speculation. I, we we have no idea about any of that. It's poor PR though for Honda if he yeah. Marquez gets into the race and crashes again, or even you know inadvertently hits someone else. Yeah, it would be even worse if he crashes and hits someone else. So uh, yeah, I mean, and there was he had nothing to gain by uh, by riding. You know, he was only going to end up. You know, it would have been battling for the top ten, and what's the point? Um, lastly, just to wrap up this subject with Mark Marquez. He is out of the championship. He's got nothing to do. I mean, Jack Miller again said, look, just do your job, ride the bike. Um, don't you be know, a princess. The, yeah, well, don't be a princess. Um, you have to be professional in that respect, and I'm sure Mark turns up when he wants to win, you know, regardless of what motorcycle he's riding. But do we think this is the end of Mark Marquez and Honda, you know, a relationship that when he came into MotoGP in 2013 and, and slayed everybody, laid waste to everything, um, 2019 still, you know, a very peerless season it has to be said in Grand Prix racing uh, do we think you know there's there's a contract renewal no um, I mean is this the end of his relationship no because he's got a year and a half left in his contract and as we were just saying there's no other real viable options for him currently um, so yeah I think you know he'll at least see out the, the, this season but is this the end of Mark and Honda being a winning force I mean they haven't been a winning force for three and a half years now so that time passed quite some time ago um, but the possibility of them becoming a winning force again yeah I think that's that that is the that's the nail in the coffin yeah I think the outburst uh, against Sean Zarco uh, in that crash you know, on Friday that that was there was so much frustration there that I think that that was very much sort of like displaced frustration that was more just anger at Honda anger at the situation anger at everything lashing out uh, I think that marks the end of, or that was a sign that this relationship is over. 
Yeah, Mark was criticised for not going to check on Zarko's state at Turn 1. In his defence, I think on the TV pictures you see he was looking across to check he was all right, could see that he was, you know, Zarko was, was moving. Yeah, so, and then of course it was towards the end of the session. I mean, it depends on how much you want someone to look after someone. You know, yeah. that's, uh, you know, as we said, Marquez, like it or not, is um, really attracting a lot of discussion in MotoGP at the moment. Uh, and somebody else, another name we should talk about when it comes to, you know, winning relationships, Pedro Acosta. Um, fantastic, um, you know, achievement winning again in Moto2, looking competitive in the rain as well, pointed that out, Neil. You know, he, there is an urgency to get him out of Moto2 now, isn't there? Despite his, his youth, um, despite his relative lack of time in Grand Prix racing, I think it's only his third, fourth season um, in Grand Prix. And, you know, how on earth do KTM find a space for him? It's, it's becoming like a real big Tetris puzzle. Yeah, it is, and it's getting to the point where he cannot be ignored any longer, um, because he's he's basically showing that he is. Well, I mean, he's not leading the championship, but the last two performances have indicated that you know he's the fastest guy in the championship, won four out of the seven races, and um, yeah, like the noises KTM were making before this weekend at the Saxon Ring were that we're happy with our rider lineup, four riders in MotoGP. We want Pedro to do another season in Moto2. And there's a deadline, maybe roughly around the end of this month or the start of July, um, that if we don't exercise an option with him, then he can look elsewhere. Um, interesting story on Speed Week this morning by Gunther Riesinger, who obviously has excellent connections at KTM. He was interviewing Pitt yesterday, Pitt Barrer, and Pitt was saying we're going to have to make this work with Pedro. Even if it means bringing him to Moto2 next year, we might have to move some parts around, make something work. We have to we have to keep hold of him because uh, the article cited, you know, Jorge Martin and how he escaped KTM and now look at the success he's having with Ducati. Um, it mentioned how other options had been explored, such as promoting Aki Ayo's team into MotoGP with Acosta as their single rider, but that isn't allowed because I think the independent teams are all locked in until 2000, the end of 26. Yeah. Um, apparently, even the idea was floated by Dorna to put Augusto Fernandez in Grassini Ducati for a year next year to accommodate Acosta, which shows you that Dorna is really pushing to have Acosta in MotoGP because they see him as a big character, as a great story, um, something that might attract uh, Spanish fans. You know, we're hearing a lot of things recently that um, viewing numbers in Spain have been way down and, um, you know, that's the kind of market that they need to reignite. So, yeah, it does point to him being in MotoGP next year, this interview with Pitt, and it very much was a kind of change of tack from what we heard at Magello. Well, added to that, I mean, Jake Dixon was in the same press conference, and there's also urgency to try and get a Brit in MotoGP. So Dixon even told us, you know, in the press conference yesterday that he's talking to a couple of teams. So there's there's a lot going on with City Season. But Dave, is it possible that KTM could get Ayo to run a one-bike effort like Irv Kanemoto did with Eddie Lawson back in 89? You know, just like stick a KTM onto the official... Or is there, do we know there's a ruling that could stop that? There is a, no, I mean, uh, well, the ruling is the, uh, there's no room for uh, independent teams. There's only room for factory teams. So it would have to be a factory effort. Um, the only factory capable of doing that at the moment is KTM um, by fielding a Husqvarna. I think 
uh, I am not sure. I think um, uh, I haven't checked the regulations, but I think that it says that all factory teams have to be two bikes, have to be two riders. Um, this again amended after Suzuki ran a single bike in 2011, I think. Um, so yeah, it, it would be it would be very difficult to sort of you know move people around but yeah there's no point in Pedro Costa having another year in Moto2 uh, unless he's getting big win bonuses and uh, yeah but he doesn't want to be in Moto2 like he obviously wants to go to MotoGP he it, it's fairly obvious that you know he do, he doesn't really has no interest in in, in Moto2 and I think even if he ended up not winning the championship he would still uh, want to move to MotoGP and he's ready for MotoGP he's just an exceptional talent well, Asin is next, and there's bound to be more meetings, um, you know, with agents, managers, and whatever else. So I hope we'll tackle this um, Acosta angle a little bit more in a podcast, maybe in the summer break, because I think there's quite a bit to get into. Because we're not even talking about the riders that are bound to push up into Moto Two next year, like you know Daniel Holgado, Dennis Onchu, you know, who measured, had a fantastically measured performance, and he beat Ayuma Sasaki, who's also looking to come up, you know, next year into Moto Two. He said to us that. Um, you know, he actually should be racing in Moto2 this year. The reason we know that is because we've got a great interview with him, um, thanks to Husqvarna Motorcycles. And the Japanese, fantastically well-spoken, been arguably nil the reference for speed on a consistent basis in Moto3 this year. And uh, anyway, here is Ayumu. Ayumu, it's fantastic to talk to you. My first question for you is a bit strange. Uh, okay. Because you seem such a, a nice, you know, calm guy. So why crazy boy? Oof, this is uh, something many people asked me before, but um, it was long time ago. I mean, I'm still young, I guess, but I, when I was 14, uh, I started to race um, abroad. So I, I, I went out from Japan and started to race Asia Talent Cup, uh, which is like a donor uh, championship. Um, the... Um, I don't know why suddenly many people called me a crazy boy. Maybe I was a bit crazy uh, on the track. And also, in it's not in a like crazy boy. I also like a lot of jokes. Uh, when I I'm with my older team, I, I'm, we make joke all the time. So maybe I was making joke off the track as well. So you know, everybody started to call me crazy boy and. Uh, I don't know, in Europe maybe it's normal, but in Asia it's not really normal to be open to a lot of, the, a lot of people. So maybe that's why they start to call me crazy boy. <laughs> well, if we look, I mean, if we look at your career from Red Bull rookies, I mean, you've been like a steady progression, you know, and it's come to a point now, I think, where fans watching in Moto3 and your combination with the Husqvarna, it's, um, you're incredibly consistent. Every track you go to, your name is at the top of the time screens, it seems, from Friday. When you look at your progression from the first years, are you happy or do you think, oh, maybe I should have been faster, quicker, like an Acosta? How do you feel about it? I think um, in the end, I'm happy uh, where I'm at the, at the moment. Um, it's different to all the Europe riders as we grew up in Asia it's such a different country and um, I was when I was fighting in Asia Tank Cup everybody was Asian so I had no problem uh, rookies cup rebel rookies cup also seems to be not a big issue but I only rode one year in a Spanish championship which is a same bike as a Moto3 bike only one or two years older 
uh, bikes and uh, I didn't get to use that bike so much before I came to World Championship. So probably right now, maybe I came to the World Championship a little bit too early. Um, I had opportunity, so I took it because I won the Rookies Cup as well. But I didn't ride much that bike. Um, but then all the Spanish riders uh, start to ride Spanish Championship maybe when I was in an Asian Talent Cup, which is 14 or 13. So maybe it took me two, three more years in the World Championship to be uh, competitive. But um, finally, I find the correct team, a good team as well, people as well. I needed to find uh, strengths also off the track, not only on the track, because I'm on my own here in Europe. Uh, my family can't travel all the way here live with me so i needed to make everything on my own like off off the track i need to be the i need to find the people who support me as well and i think everything came together maybe last two years and now i think we are in a good moment does that come also with some personal maturity just as you grow up and you learn to deal with situations and things like pressure yeah well when i was 16 i was thinking i'm okay but if I think about it now, definitely I was like younger and uh, of course I was not coping with many things well. And now I am 22 and I can, you know, cope with many things. My, I can do almost all the things without my, having my parents. It's maybe starting from two years ago. So um, definitely I was too young at the time. Where are you, because the season is so long, you know, if we count pre-season tests, where are you based during the year when you're not at home? Right now I live in Barcelona and uh, I believe that's the best place to, to stay, to train. Uh, you know, there's also many Spanish riders, as you can see. There's many track. Uh, the weather is always amazing. So um, Decent food. Yeah, also good food. Uh, so that's why I stay in uh, Spain. I I hope I can go back to Japan, but uh, I think um, Spain is the best place to to prepare for the for the races. And you mean your speed this year? Is that based on your familiarity with the Husqvarna from last year? Is it just a continuation? Yeah, last year had been an amazing season with Husqvarna, and uh, I had injury last year um, in middle of the year that stopped us quite a lot, but. Through the second half of the season, I scored maybe second most in a Moto3 class. Guevara, Isan Guevara won the championship maybe, but second half of the season, I was maybe second in, like, second in championship if I take a second part of the season point. So already last year, we were, we were very quick. Um, this year, we, we are keeping the momentum. I, I made small mistake being on, over the season with two crashes but uh we're definitely showing the speed so um yeah right now we are coming back and uh trying to catch the front guys i mean your maturity again was on show because after you got back on the podium you were relaxed you weren't going you know crazy in the last laps to take a win or whatever i mean it was a fantastic approach those mistakes that you made earlier on, what kind of character are you? Is it something you think about a lot for some days after the GP or is it something you can forget quite quickly? I tried to forget. Uh, I did forget the first one in uh, Argentina because it was rain condition and it was very difficult condition. But the one in America was difficult to forget uh, because I was reading a race 
I thought that I was riding not on the limit. I thought I was riding maybe 90% uh, of my best, but uh, I made a mistake and I ended up crashing in when I was reading the race. So um, that hurt me a little bit. But um, maybe when you feel so good on the bike, maybe your limit is 90%. Uh, so uh, that's something I learned and uh, that's... Uh, yeah, that was a mistake that I learned most from this year, I guess. Your race bike, the FR250 GP, um, tell us about the strong points, you know, which which parts, characteristics of the bike suit your style? Well, the bike is um, amazing. I mean, the braking, especially for me, is uh, is a big step uh, from last year. I, I made a big step compared to the other years. Um, I improved so much on braking, especially and en- also engine brake, but uh, into the corners is almost everything in motorsports because if you go in and if you can stop the bike well, to open a gas is not difficult. I mean, it is difficult, but it's not that difficult. The most important is how you go into the corner. So that is the main thing. And uh, that's, that's where I have the confidence the most. You have some experience now in Moto3 race fans and people new to MotoGP might watch Moto3 and think, oh, you know, this is absolutely mad what what we're seeing here. You know, from your perspective, you know, somewhere like Mugello when there's four or five of you going on the last two laps for the win, how difficult is it to remain calm and and to make decisions and make a strategy? Because it it seems like it's impossible from the outside. Yes, uh, it is always difficult to make strategy uh, in Moto3. Every corner you have to make new strategy. Uh, one corner and then you make another strategy because you, you never know when people are gonna pass you. Um, so it's difficult, but in the end, um, everybody have respect now, uh, I believe. Um, this year, especially the riders fighting in the front group, we, we all respect each other and, uh, we give some spaces as well. So we trust, um, also the people who you're racing with so um that maybe helps uh, quite a lot yeah because moto 3 tends to recycle riders a lot don't they i mean you have yeah, a yeah. rider like john who was your teammate yeah, last yeah. year who stays a long time but then you have others who come in and one or two years in, mm. and then they move on so i guess to always find safe riders you can race with and be you know confident with is difficult sometimes Yes, and uh, also the the rhythm, also the class uh, start to change past three years. Um, in the past, had been always like fifteen to twenty riders in a front group, uh, maybe four years ago, and that was maybe more fun to watch. Uh, but uh, past three years, the level of the championship start to go really high, and always the top guys makes a small difference to the rest of the group so finally even this year the biggest group we had was maybe six uh top top riders even Mugero is one of the track that you can have 20 riders in front group but in the end we had only five guys in front group so past three years it's making to a new championship i mean it start to have a small groups or also so which is good i mean this is uh safer as well and uh it's easier to beat race just two more questions for you. Um, the team structure and organization changed a little bit from last year. The bike stayed the same, yeah. the color, but um, everything else changed a little bit. How has that been for you? Has it been very smooth? 
having people like Peter at all, you know, staying in place and that yeah. working relationship. Has it been okay? Yes, um, I have all the teams. Um, my side is all all same uh, compared to last year. And yes, again, uh, Peter is um, for for me is a perfect um, boss. Um, he don't put any pressure. He always uh, supporting a riders. I believe he was a rider as well, so he know what uh, what rider feels. He he know what rider need as well. So um, I can't complain about um, my boss. He's uh, he, he's amazing. Uh, lastly, Yuma, how do you see your career now? Because people look at Taka and MotoGP. They talk about I, you know, making the progress from Moto Two to mm-hmm. MotoGP. How do you see your steps? Do you think you're reaching a peak now in Moto3 and it's time for, for the next step soon? Yes, um, I was uh, thinking about going to Moto2 uh, even la- last year. I mean, going to this year uh, as I had maybe some opportunity as well. But I decided to stay uh, to fight for championship, which I hope I will do this year. And this year i think in every track we had been uh quick uh we finished top three in qualifying in all the other races until now and i believe um i think it's time to to move up i i also feel that i can do well in moto 2 so i think it's that it's time also it, it was good that Husqvarna started moto 2 team as well uh going to this year so um that's a great structure and uh hopefully i can jump on that bike um next year yuma thanks ever so much thank for your you time so much. best of luck thank you good to hear there from yuma sasaki importantly also just to hear from riders i think in motor 2 and motor 3 generally we don't usually speak to these guys you know on a, on a, a one-to-one basis it speak can be for yourself man <laughs> Struggling to see it anywhere, Neil. All right, uh, yeah, get, get some audio in this podcast. But um, let's go on to our winners and losers from Germany uh, because um, Assen is hard upon, so we'll be um, moving straight on to round eight in a matter of hours and days. Uh, for me, I'm going to pick Peko Bagnaya. Um, like I said in the note show, Dave, I just want to thank Peko for making that a real contest. Uh, he easily could have throttled off and thought, I'm not going to catch Martin. I'm just going to take the points, take the championship lead. Uh, you know, he talked about improving the rear stability on the Desmos Adichie. He found a handling improvement. The team's working well. Uh, Gabarini's working his magic for him. Uh, I thought it was a, a fantastic performance. So, um, and Bagnaia bounded back. He said, actually, pre-event that Saxon Ring 2022 was like a little bit of a low point mentally, or it was a point where he reorientated his goals for the year, and then we know what happened afterwards. Mm. So, um, a much improved performance, Bagnaia. He's my winner. Neil? Uh, I'm going to go with Jack Miller. I thought it was just a solid weekend. Uh, best KTM. He beat Brad Binder in the sprint. He was losing to Binder in the main race, but then Brad obviously had that big crash, which was a shame for him. But yeah, the only non-Ducati rider inside the top nine. Um, and just like another pretty solid weekend. Like nothing majorly spectacular, but front row start, third in the sprint. Um, and steady pace in the the feature race i mean he had that huge moment coming down into turn 11 on the first lap which saw him engulfed by the the three ducatis i think it was martin bagnaia and marini all swarmed over him um underwear changing moment i think he said i think he did use the uh yeah he did say that or indicate that he had uh soiled his uh his underpants um but uh, apart from that you know it was a, it was a steady ride um and you know miller just doing a, I think, a, an exceptional job this year with the KTM. Uh, it's always funny that riders have uh, lucky underpants and then proceed to soil them um, uh, whenever <laughs> they're past their places. Um, for me, uh, my winner has to be Gigi Delinia, um, eight Ducatis in the top nine. 
Um, uh, and it, it, I, first time in history they've finished in the top five. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for the first time in history that they the top five out. Yeah, exactly. The last a time week af- a week after. First time in history they had occupied the top four. Yeah, exactly. And at some point we're going to have a top eight. And if, if both KTMs, because the only people are keeping Ducati honest are KTM. KTM are doing a fantastic job of actually taking the fights to uh, Ducati. But, you know, uh, Gigi Delinia was hired to win a championship for uh, Ducati. He's done that. The, the way he is running the organization, using all the resources at his disposal, using the eight bikes on the grid, the fact that the GP22 and GP23 are similar enough that, they, that they're providing useful feedback uh, from their riders. Um, yeah, no hats off. The, it, this, this was the weekend that really justified, I mean, apart from last year, this was the weekend that really justified his hiring. And where there are winners, there are miserable wretches. So, Neil, who was your candidate for the uh, the fall guy of, of Germany? I wouldn't call him a miserable wretch, Adam. I think that's a little bit harsh, especially because we just had him on our show. Um, but my loser, I guess, would be Yuma Sasaki. He did finish second, but he was the poor sitter by over a second in Moto3. New lap record. Obliterated the new lap record, or the, the existing lap record by seven tenths of a second. Um I think after six laps, he was over or close to a second and a half ahead of the rest. You just thought, okay, he was going to piss off and comfortably win. But Dennis Andre, much to his credit, rallied, caught him up, and then mugged him really in the last corner. And uh, yeah, I think that would just, that one's going to be pretty hard to take for Yuma just because he was so dominant, had such a clear step on the rest, and still didn't quite manage to get the job done. Um, you know, he's clearly, I think, I think he is the fastest guy in Moto Three this year, but just. It, it's yeah. I, I think a few of the crashes earlier in the year in Argentina and Austin were playing on his mind for a couple of races. He wasn't willing to take the risk um, in France, um, and yeah, now it's becoming a bit of a thing. It's like now it seems like a bit of a weight on his shoulders that you know I haven't won a race this year. Yeah, but I mean, you sort of get the feeling that when he does, then that's going to be pretty much it. Do you know what I mean? Then it's th- th- there's going to be lots coming. It's one of that. Uh, um, it, it's just waiting for the dam to burst. Who's your loser? My loser. Well, I mean, like my loser, we've discussed it at length. There's no point in the. Uh, nothing more I can add is HRC. This was the most miserable weekend in their history, and this year they've had a lot of really miserable weekends, and th- there's no sign of any any improvement. Hey, but they scored a point. Attacking Nakagami. Aha! Well, congratulations, Takanakagami, on scoring a point on on being the third fastest Japanese motorcycle in MotoGP on Sunday. We haven't even touched Yamaha, to be honest, guys. Uh, and you know, and it's a separate that, podcast, though. Right? Yeah, it is a separate podcast. <laughs> Fabio Quattararo using the 2021 setup, just throwing on a soft rear tire because, well, what else could he do? Yeah, uh, but, yeah. I know. mean, that, that that's the that, that again tells you all you need to know about where Yamaha are. They're doing desperate things like throwing soft tires at it. And like we were saying uh, with Mark Marquez in Saxon Ring, I think we'll have to address the Yamaha issue when it comes to Assen. Usually, a place where Fabio Casarar is, you know, a different level. So uh, maybe one for for the podcast next week. My loser was um, I'm going to say Brad Binder, um, not on in performance terms, but I think that crash. Uh, basically, just when he lost grip um, on the left foot peg, went wide, you know, just didn't have enough room to pick up the bike before he hit the gravel. 
um, is a bit of a blow to his championship hopes. I know you made the point at the top of the show, Dave, that there's like a million points left to win this year. So still plenty of time for the South Africans to get back into it. But um, I think that was a bit of a blow because he could have been easily on for a podium there, depending if Zarko maybe could have reeled him in. That was... Uh, yeah, and also it was a really big... It was a really big crash uh, from such a tiny little incident sort of thing. You know, that's that's just terrible luck. Yeah, and I would also give a little nod towards Maverick Vinales because I think... Like Neil, you told me yesterday, I, I wasn't even aware that he didn't appear for one media debrief throughout the weekend. He I don't just think didn't he did, see him. Did he? No, I no. Uh, he t- he, at some point he turned up in the in the media centre for one of them, uh, stood around. But then you know they turned up five riders, and you know we can only speak to two at the same time because you know it's one in their native language and one in English. Uh, stood around for a little for about uh, five minutes and then walked away. I guess he, which feel, is uh, you know it's fair enough because it was just utter chaos. But it, it always is utter chaos. I guess he feel he didn't have much to say. I mean, it was yeah. terrible, and then blowing the engine and, and pulling out. I mean, um, again, it seems like Maverick and Aprilia that that harmony is not singing quite on, on full tune at the moment. The honeymoon um, is over. Yeah. Okay, moving on to Aston next, uh, guys. You know, home GP for you, Dave. And we have a fantastic podcast somewhere. I think even might be on YouTube where you go through the pronunciation of how the corners or how they should be said. Yeah, I, I know, should have to retweet that at some point. Yes, points. I know Neil's embraced it fully for his commentary duties. In fact, um, Neil, he's, just got, he's to... just going to play my pronunciation of every corner every time. Yeah, he's going to do it on a sound, a sound loop. The you audio. the Aaron Model 2 FP2, man. Aston, you know, it's. Guys, this is three races back-to-back. It's very draining, but, I mean, three amazing circuits and venues, three different types of crowds. I mean, we're expecting, again, more people in the Netherlands. It's um, you know, it's a staple event on the calendar day. Yeah, I mean, like, we, they are. Expe- I don't think it's quite sold out yet, but it's not far off being sold out. All the grandstands are sold out. The atmosphere is always fantastic. Um, it's a special race. Um, uh, it's a special racetrack as well. I mean, apart from sort of, like, having lost the North Loop, the southern part of that track is just fantastic. Um, it's normally a Yamaha track, but as we know, there are no Yamaha tracks anymore. They're just rubbish everywhere. Um, <laughs> God knows how many Hondas will actually turn up on the grid. Um, it, I expect it to, to be quite a low number. Steffel Bradl will be in for Alex Rins. Uh, we know that, but who knows? He might be the only Honda, uh, the only Honda there. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be Ducati versus KTM again. Well, having talked about Maverick Minialis, this is also a great track for him now. Maybe he could reverse things there. Uh, Marco Bezecchi was his first podium last year. Maybe he, you know, can turn things around a little bit. Uh, you know, you just and Alessia Spargaro, of course, was fantastically fast. So fingers crossed that Aprilia can join the fray. Yeah, but then we said that at Mugello, it should have been an Aprilia track because it's quite a, a sweet handling machine. Um, we said that at Saxon Ring, Alessia Spargaro was on the podium there last year. Um, and yes, he was the, the, the standout guy in last year's Dutch TT, but um, yeah, as he said on Sunday, uh, yesterday, um, Aprilia have improved 3% this year, whereas Ducati have made big, big strides. KTM have made big, big strides this year. So I don't think it's going to be enough. So yeah, I think it's going to be Banyaya, Bezeki, Martin, the, 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 the kind of the, the similar figures, maybe, maybe Zarco up there as well. Um, and maybe... Jack Miller and Brad Binder, but I'm, I'm not saying that with Chris, um, with uh, absolute certainty. Maybe there is a pattern emerging here. I mean, all three podiums yesterday and all three classes were the same riders that we saw in Mugello. There was no, apart from the change in the order, of course. 
But um, uh, Leisure Spark are also complaining a little bit about the, sp the starting device on the Aprilia, saying that's also another factor where they haven't progressed and the others have. Yeah, and they've been playing around with clutches all year, uh, literally all year. Uh, every time there's a, there's a test, you know when there's a, a, an Aprilia leaving the pits because they do a test start. It's um, it, it's amazing. Also, like if you go down into the pits, you will see you know like clutches lying around. They are really struggling with the start. Um, it's something which KTM have absolutely nailed down. Um, just amazing. The KTM start are amazing. Um, so much so that uh, teams are starting to uh, uh, whisper rumours about um, them having something uh, something illegal. This always happens whenever you know one bike gets good at one thing. Uh, then obviously it, they must be cheating. Um, no, I can't see anything uh, that, that they'd be doing illegal other than that they're both I mean Brad Binner has always been a really good start and Jack Miller's been a good a good starting and they've got that they've just got everything perfect to get off the line that is where Aprilia is missing so TT Circuit Assen next remember folks it is not the a religious institution the oh, cathedral God, of speed I couldn't even get it out anyway we we'll, weren't going to let you get that or the, uh, miss that one you know mate yeah I'm missing the race so I mean I just had to look at that ridiculous poster don't but, worry we'll send you a picture yeah I'm sure you shall thank you very much uh, cheers for listening guys thank you also so much to Renthal go and check out Renthal.com as I said at the top of the show and to Husqvarna Motorcycles we hope you enjoyed the interviews with both Darren Binder and Ayumu Sasaki in the last two shows we'll be back right after the uh, latest Grand Prix in the Netherlands and headed into the summer break <laughs>